This is The Guardian. Today, what happens to the people who risk everything to get to Europe and don't survive the journey? Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Before we start, I want to let you know that we discuss death and burial in this episode. So please take care when you're listening. It's a huge touristy area that's one of these typical resort towns that you would find in Lanzarote. The photographer picked me up and it was like we had traveled to another world, away from the touristy areas, away from the beautiful beaches that people know of Lanzarote. We were in this cemetery and it was incredibly quiet. Ashifa Kassam is a correspondent for The Guardian who reports on stories across Europe. She's been thinking about the people, hundreds of thousands of people every year, who try to reach this continent in dangerous conditions, in rickety, overfull boats. And she's been thinking about the people who don't make it. Where are they buried? And how will the people who love them learn of their deaths? So we were walking through there. It was incredibly windy and you've got gravel crunching under you. And there's just this neat kind of lines of graves. Of the 60, about 25 were unmarked. And so we just made our way through there to try and figure out which one would have been Al-Hassan's. It's less than a meter in length and covered in that ochre-colored stone that you see across Lanzarote, that kind of burnt orange-colored stone, and you've got stones circling around it. It's shockingly tiny when you see what exactly it is. There's no way to mistake it for anything but an infant's grave. Al-Hassan Bangora was born on one of those rickety, overfull boats, travelling from Morocco to Lanzarote in the Canary Islands. He died on that boat. And what happened to Al-Hassan tells us so much about how Europe treats people who've risked everything to come here, but who don't make it. There hasn't been such a rise in the number of unmarked graves outside wartime. And so The Guardian has been investigating the scale of this problem and what it means for the relatives who are seeking answers. I think we often speak about the arrival of migrants or a surge in migrants in a very abstract way. They're often just numbers, sometimes maybe a photo or two, but very rarely. And then the numbers tick upwards and that's all we think about. But to stand there and really grasp that these are people, these are lives, these are some of the most innocent people that are losing their lives because of this, it's quite overwhelming. From The Guardian, 
I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus. What Europe's growing number of unmarked graves says about the migrant crisis. Ashifa, you've been in Lanzarote to find out what happened to a baby called Al-Hassan, who was born on a boat in the Atlantic Ocean. His mum survived the journey. What can you tell me about her and why she was on that boat? We don't know much about her. The few people that were in touch with her following this have lost touch with her. So we don't know where she is or what happened to her after this episode. But we know she's from Guinea. And we know that she took the boat from Morocco. And so that suggests that she probably crossed by land across several countries. And honestly, people don't make these journeys unless they're incredibly desperate. And so the migrants that we have spoken to, they talk about the lack of stability in their home countries, the lack of any kind of opportunities. Often if they're pregnant or they have children, they're seeking a better life for their children. They're hoping to find some sort of salve from either physical dangers or just economic ruin. And that's what's driving them to make this journey. They know how dangerous it is, but They've all weighed the possibilities and decided that the risk is worth taking. And that kind of hints at probably what had happened in this case as well. So Al-Hassan's mum had travelled from Guinea in West Africa and she got on a boat from Morocco headed for Lanzarote. What was that journey like? There were 39 people and 19 of them children that were crammed into this rickety raft, essentially. And the idea was really a seven-hour journey that would be 200 kilometers. What they were given was nowhere near capable of doing that. And so the fuel ran out after the first day. And they ended up drifting just at the mercy of the Atlantic. They didn't have food and water on board to sustain anything longer than that seven-hour journey. And so hunger and thirst set in quite immediately. And the survivors of this trip spoke about how you would hear the children crying out for food and for water. Some of the other survivors said that the boat was so tightly packed, if they moved, they could fall over. And so one man spoke of not sleeping for kind of nearly four days because he was terrified that if he let go of the rigidity, he would end up falling into the water. Right, so they were floating out in the ocean without fuel for several days. Did they manage to get a distress signal out? They were drifting around. They had no idea where they were. They didn't have a compass. They didn't have anything. They had been told that this was a straightforward journey. And at some point, one of the young men that was on the boat lit up his mobile phone and in came a message, that message that we all get when we're traveling through EU countries that says, welcome to Spain. If you're here, here's your network. And so they knew all of a sudden that they were somewhere in Spanish territorial waters. It was the first hint of hope that they had had in days of battling these horrible currents. From there, they started calling. There's an NGO called Walking Borders that helps patrol the waters around Spain. Walking Borders alerted authorities. And so authorities went out and they spent two days looking for this boat. You can imagine just how vast this area is of the Atlantic, that it took two days to locate this small raft. And eventually they were located and they were in Spanish waters at that point. So they were brought to Spain. By that point, Al-Hassan had been born... What kind of state of health was he in? 
On the third night of them being lost at sea was when the mother reportedly gave birth. And that's according to the people that were on the boat. And she was helped by another one of the pregnant ladies that was on the boat. And so that lady, when she spoke to media afterwards, she said that they never heard the baby cry. When rescue officials made their way to the boat, they were able to confirm that a newborn had been born very, very recently. And they said that the body was cold, suggesting that the baby had not made it. And this is one of the reasons that Spanish media really seized on this story, because they began describing the baby as the youngest victim of one of the world's deadliest migration routes. So can you give me a bit of context about Lanzarote as a place for people seeking refuge? Because it doesn't seem like an obvious island to go to. You know, it's part of the Canary Islands. So if you're trying to get to mainland Europe, it's still quite a journey from there to mainland Europe, isn't it? Why do people go to Lanzarote? What it comes down to is that these days the routes go where the surveillance allows them to go. And so since 2006, we've been seeing large amounts of people risking the incredible fierce swells of the Atlantic to arrive on the Canary Islands off of Spain. And it's one of the most dangerous, deadliest routes. The crackdown in the Mediterranean means that people have turned to this route to try and make it. And they know that if they arrive in the Canary Islands as it's part of Spain, at some point they will be sent to mainland Spain. Essentially, it's a gateway to Europe. And for them, that's all they're looking for. And how many people are making the journey to Lanzarote each year? The Canary Islands in general have seen more than 35,000 people at this point of the year. And so it's been a record-breaking year, which really kind of speaks to the risks that people are taking. A lot of those arriving are from Senegal. And the reports that we've been hearing from migrants on the ground is that it's directly linked to the instability in that country. The Senegalese army says it has launched an operation against rebels in Casamans, the scene of an old conflict in the south of the country. And so you really see that when things go wrong, this is what we see on our end, is that these migrants are willing to take these risks. And it is a particularly dangerous journey, I'd imagine, because it means getting out into the Atlantic Ocean where the currents and the winds are much stronger on average than in the Mediterranean. Do a lot of people hoping to make that journey not make it? Yeah, that's one of the horrific things about this journey is that we have numbers of a few hundred people that have perished, but those numbers are incredibly incomplete because there's so many boats that go out that we never find again, that we never hear from. Chances are they were swallowed by the waves or they tipped because these boats are absolutely no match for these currents, for these waves, for the Atlantic Ocean. And so what we see in Spain and what we see across the EU is this tiny fraction of what is probably happening out there. If somebody dies on the journey to Lanzarote and their body is brought to shore, what happens to it? There's a mechanism that does spring into place that's unique to Spain because in every single EU country it is different. But in Spain what happens is the police come up 
to the site to make sure that the person has perished. And emergency services are usually with them. And so the person is declared dead there. From there, they're in the hands of judicial authorities who are often trying to investigate smugglers and potential smuggling routes. And so the body ends up kept in a morgue while judicial authorities are carrying out their research. And then eventually when they have enough for their investigation, in a place like Lanzarote that can take up to eight months, we've been told, then they release the body. And then it can be either buried If it's identified, sometimes at places like Morocco or Algeria, very rarely will repatriate the body. Sometimes families have a specific place that they want to bury their loved ones. But a bulk of these people are never being identified. So what happened to Al-Hassan? When the boat was rescued, several people were taken to the hospital, including his mom, who had been unconscious since the delivery. He was taken to the hospital in a helicopter and emergency officials were trying to resuscitate him, but they didn't have any luck. The officials declared him officially dead. And from there, the judicial system sprang into action and they took his body to see if it was part of any wider investigation. And so you had the mom in the hospital recovering and you had the body held in a morgue somewhere else, essentially far from the mother. I can't imagine the state of shock that she would have been in at that stage. I guess you have to put yourself in her shoes. She had arrived in a foreign country where she doesn't speak the language and her baby was just gone. And it took everything for people to convince her that her baby hadn't survived the journey, that that's what had happened and not that her baby had been stolen or taken from her in some way. And so there was, as would happen with anyone when you arrive in a foreign country, this kind of level of distrust. The people that I spoke with who were with her in the hospital, just spoke of the mental toll that this had taken and how incredibly distraught she was over what had happened. Where did she go after she came out of hospital? Within a few days, she was released from the hospital and she was sent to another island in the Canary Islands called Gran Canaria, which is about 200 kilometers away. And there, there was an NGO that was willing to take care of her. The issue at this point, though, was that she was sent there But her son's body was still in the care of judicial authorities and they wouldn't release it. And so she went there without really having that kind of closure. She hadn't seen the body. She hadn't been able to hold her son. She hadn't been able to properly grieve when she was sent away. Then what happened next to Al-Hassan? And so Al-Hassan's body was eventually released. The mother had been in contact with several people on the island, and so they knew that her wish was for him to have a Muslim burial. And so the Muslim community actually sprang into action and organized for him to have a plot of land in the Muslim cemetery. There were people that attended on behalf of the mother. There were people that attended from the Muslim community, from the migrant community of Lanzarote. A few of the bureaucrats that had been involved in the case attended as well. One of the things that happened, though, that's unexplained about this story is that the city of Teguise, where he was buried, had gotten in touch with judicial authorities. They had spoken to the mom, and so they had his official name of Al-Hassan. But his grave was left unmarked. And it kind of speaks to a larger void that exists with these kinds of happenings, essentially, that there is nobody who's in charge of making sure that these graves are marked, that they're remembered in certain ways, that these people are remembered for what happened to them. After a person is buried in Lanzarote, in these sorts of circumstances, 
Is it typical for their graves to be left unmarked? So maybe the proper terminology is more nameless because they're usually marked in some ways. Al-Hassan's wasn't marked at all. But I went around the island and I visited several cemeteries with the photographer to get a sense of what exactly that looks like when migrants are buried. And we saw things like migrant boat number four or a date of arrival or person unidentified and a date of arrival. So boat 19, number 26. And this vessel arrived on the 8th of February, 2023. We heard stories from other places in the Canary Islands. For example, you would see, here lies people who lost their lives trying to make this journey and things like that. But it's not enough that would allow family members to ever track down these people. I can't imagine what it would be like to try to find somebody in this maze of graves that just have a boat number on it. I'd imagine it's very haunting to walk in and amongst those. And what feeling did you get walking and seeing those graves? It's awful. It's awful to walk through and realize that these lives have disappeared, that people won't be able to find them, that all that they were, that spark that they were, is no longer remembered anywhere It's an awful feeling to realize that this is what it has come to. Ashifa, we've only talked about the situation in Lanzarote and a little bit about the broader Canary Islands so far, but the sad truth is that there are thousands of people who die every year on the journey to Europe. And the question of how to bury them, if it's possible, is one for the whole of the continent. What is the situation across Europe at the moment? So since September, there's been a team of Guardian journalists that have been working with journalists from a group called the Border Graves Investigation Team. And we've been trying to pull together statistics or some sort of idea just how often this is happening. And the starting place for this project was really this idea that thousands of people are being buried in nameless graves in the EU. And this is something that we haven't seen outside of times of war. And we wanted to see how we could home in on exactly what was happening. So how did you go about it? The Border Graves investigation team went out and combed through dozens of cemeteries looking for the burial plots of migrants. And what they found really captures how varied the situation is across the EU. So in Greece, they found rough white stones that were surrounded by weeds, and that was what was marking burials of migrants. In Lampedusa, in southern Italy, you get scattered wooden crosses where migrants have been buried. In France, they found faceless slabs of concrete that were just marked with an X, And it appears to be more than a thousand graves where the markings are either no name or unidentified or migrant boat, everything except for their name. Ashifa, you say that there are more than a thousand graves of migrants that are unmarked. Do we have any idea of how many of the people who die on the journey to Europe are actually identified? 
We worked with the International Committee of the Red Cross, who provided us with exclusive numbers. And the numbers that they found estimated that about 20,000 people went missing between 2014 and 2019. And of those, 13% were found. So already a very small proportion. And of those who were found, it was even smaller. It was around half of those bodies they were able to identify. And so we're really talking about a tiny proportion of those who are found and identified from the many that undertake this route. So of the 20,000 people who've died on the journey to Europe in those years, only about 7% of them are found and identified. How do officials go about identifying people who've been on those crossings? I'd imagine it's very complicated. There are things that can be done and there are people that are doing them. And so as part of this investigation, the team spoke to forensic pathologists who are working to track down the people who died. And they're using little tiny things, not only DNA samples, but just personal items that are found on people's bodies. Loose change in a foreign currency will tell you where that person likely traveled from. Prayer beads, a Manchester United souvenir badge in one case helped people to track down. And so there are people that are working in this to try and accomplish this Herculean task of identifying these people. That being said, it is incredibly complicated and it is an almost impossible task. And the situation, of course, will vary from country to country, but is it possible to say why of those people who are identified, that small proportion who are identified, why a lot of the graves are being left unmarked? Because there's nobody coordinating this, there's nobody telling municipalities or officials how this needs to look. That means that what you're seeing is often a reflection of political will on the ground. And so when I visited the cemetery of Teguise, they were fairly keen to try and have the gravestones marked whenever possible. We've seen here in Spain, in another of the Canary Islands, there was a mayor who said that absolutely not would she pay for any more burials of migrants. She said, that's not our responsibility. And so that's what translates into whether you get touching tombstones or something that could allow family members to maybe one day trace their loved one to things that say no name or just an X. Given that this is a problem across several EU countries, isn't the European Parliament saying something about this to make it more systematic, to make it so that people's graves have to be marked and so that their relatives can try to find them. In 2021, the European Parliament passed a resolution, and this resolution did acknowledge the right of those who die on migration routes to be identified. It also recognized that there was the need for some sort of properly coordinated database that could actually collect the details of those who had perished. That being said, that was in 2021, and there's been no meaningful progress on this. Coming up, one man's journey to try and find his missing relative. <laughs> Too tired to clean your floors after playtime? Forgot to vacuum before your friends bring their little ones over? Let Eufy X10 Pro Omni help. Powerful 8,000 PA suction removes debris and Mop Master dual mop pads scrub away stubborn stains with ease. 
Save time and keep your floors cleaner. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. So for people who've lost their friends or relatives, how do they go about at the moment trying to find their resting places? So one of the people that we spoke to as part of this border graves investigation was a man named Abdullah, who's based in France. And his cousin, Osama, took one of these kind of rickety, it was a 5.5 meter boat across from the northwestern coast of Algeria in hopes of arriving in Cartagena in southern Spain. This is a a neighborhood project. A lot of young from the same neighborhood, they gather, Mm -hmm. they organize the boat. So when days went by and they hadn't heard anything from Osama, the family started to get a bit worried. And so his brother traveled from southern France to Cartagena, to the region of Murcia, to ask and They didn't have any luck. They left a DNA sample. They asked police officers. They asked migrants associations. And nobody had heard of whether this boat had landed. And so this was about 10 days after the boat had left. Perhaps he was laying low to avoid authorities. Perhaps there was just confusion about where he had landed. And so they still were hoping. One month, two months go by. And then in February, they're really starting to come to grips with the chances are that this boat trip did not go well. So Abdullah joins the brother, Sufyan, and the two of them travel to Spain again. And this time they drive all along the coast and they stop in everywhere that they can find to stop in, any police station, any morgue, anywhere, to ask for any information that anybody might have about Usama. Abdullah said that At one point, they entered the morgue in Almeria and they started speaking with the forensic pathologist and they were showing pictures of Usama. And right away, 
they could see that she seemed to recall something. And she was quite confused with this picture. And she said that, in Spanish, she said that this man looks familiar to me. And so they pushed a little bit more and she recalled something about a necklace. And they got excited because they thought he was wearing a necklace. It's true. He was a barber by trade and he had always worn a necklace that had kind of a mini pair of scissors and a comb. And so they thought, okay, that's a good sign. And then the next thing she said was, I don't think he's a migrant, though, because he was wearing a jet ski life jacket. Osama had left Algeria wearing a life jacket that was a jet ski life jacket. And so they thought, this might be him. We might have found him after hundreds of kilometers of driving through Spain, asking anybody that will pay attention to us. And the forensic pathologist said, well, the way that it works in Spain is that I can't let you see the body. You need police authorization. And so Abdullah and his cousin took off and they went to visit police stations. And they went to one after another, after another, after another. And at each one of them, they were turned away and they were told, this isn't our jurisdiction. This isn't something that we can do. In one of them, Abdullah said that he remembered being treated quite callously, having one of the officers almost jeer at him and say, well, if they didn't want to disappear, they shouldn't have taken the boat. When someone is doing all he is doing to come to your places, to your police department, police center, try at least to be human, try at least to do what you can do to help him because he's searching for someone that he's loving. What happened was eventually they gave up. They knew that there was no way that they were going to get to see the body that they believed was their cousin. And so they got in the car and they went back to France. And Abdullah speaks about how heartbreaking it was. It just, it was one of the most difficult things that he had ever been through in his life to just leave his cousin potentially in a fridge and never have any kind of closure as to what had happened to him. I will remember Osama as a really brave person. And I know that in the difficult situation that he faced, he was, uh, I'm sure that he was helping people the much he can do. Gosh, I mean, to go through all that, what has that done to him? Abdullah said that months on after the experience, he had completely transformed how he sees European administrations. He's a French citizen. And he didn't feel like people treated his request as if they were looking for a fellow human being. He felt dismissed, he felt belittled, and he felt like the lack of attention really spoke to how much we care about migrants that disappear on the borders of Europe. The same country that was not taking care of them when they were alive will not take care of them where they were missing people. I'm quite uh, sure about this. He had been thinking about going back to Spain. One of the things that the forensic pathologist told them was that within a year or so, the bodies are usually moved. And the boat that Osama was on had left on Christmas Day last year. And so this December on Christmas Day will mark exactly one year, which means that the chances of finding his cousin are significantly diminished. When we spoke to him, he was really reluctant to put himself through that emotionally. He just said, it would be so hard for me to have to leave again, having failed the second time to find Osama. And for him, that was a crushing thought, just that idea of driving back to France without having ever found his cousin. It hammered home just how much it meant to them to be able to 
put closure to this, to find the body of Osama and give him a proper burial. Without that, it felt like they were still missing a limb. I'm dreaming of Osama. Really? Yeah, yeah, sometimes. And as we don't have any information, I'm trying to interpret all these dreams. Why I'm seeing him. But this is only dreams. Ashifa, what Abdullah's told you demonstrates how vital it is for families to know what's happened and to have some form of closure. One of our Guardian journalists spoke to a woman named Pauline Boss, who is at the University of Minnesota. Pauline spoke about this idea that these families are kind of stuck in time. They feel guilty about moving forward, but they're incapable of finding out more information. They're kind of just really immobilized. There's also all these practical consequences of it that we never think about. So for example, if you're a spouse of someone who has disappeared on a migration route, you might not be able to exercise your parental rights. You might not be able to inherit things. You might not be able to claim pensions without a death certificate. Orphans cannot be adopted by extended family in some cases. And so not only are you wrestling with this loss that you don't have any closure to, but there's also these very real consequences for your life in terms of not having an official death certificate, in terms of not knowing. Essentially, what we all know is that the rituals that surround burying someone is a deep human need. And having these names marked means not only can the family visit, but that we remember these people. And it really speaks to this idea that a name means you are on this earth and not forgotten. What we've been talking about is so significant because in having a marked grave, in having somebody's name there and having a place where their relatives, their friends can go and visit and pay their respects, that forces everybody to see that person as an individual. In your reporting, have you seen attempts by people to, regardless of what the authorities are doing, try to do something to say, here is a person who was special, who was unique. There are two initiatives that stand out to me. So one was in Fuerteventura, one of these Canary Islands. In Spain, they mark the Day of the Dead. And what you do on the Day of the Dead is you go to visit the grave sites of your loved ones and you bring flowers and it's a day to commemorate those who have passed. And what I found particularly touching is that there are some municipalities that have encouraged people to go and put flowers on the graves of migrants to speak to the fact that they were part of what happened in this community. The other one is with Al-Hassan's grave. When you go to this grave site, it's this unmarked grave, it's circled with stones. And today, when you go there, there's two bouquets of daisies that have been left there, one orange, one white, and a little bowl that someone left. And it's got his name, Al-Hassan, etched into it. I asked around and I don't know where those came from. I don't know who did that. But it speaks to the impact that his short life had. And it speaks to the impact that his story had on people on the island. That three years later, there's still people who are taking care of that grave. Ashifa, thank you so much. Thank you, Hannah. That was Ashifa Kassam. If you go to theguardian.com, 
You can read her report from Lanzarote, as well as the wider investigation into unmarked graves across Europe. Thanks to Leah Patton, who worked with Ashifa on this report, and to the Border Graves Investigation Project. The Guardian went to the Ministry of Justice and Interior in Spain for a comment about the difficulties that Abdullah and other people are having in getting information about their loved ones. The Interior Ministry said in a statement that it treats all unidentified bodies in the same way, regardless of whether they're found along Spanish coasts. A spokesperson for the European Commission said that the rights and dignity of refugees and migrants had to be addressed alongside tackling the crime of people smuggling. Every member state, it said, is responsible for how it deals with those who die on its borders. And it added that it was working to improve coordination and protocols and that it regrets the loss of every human life. That's it for today. I'm Hannah Moore, and this episode was produced by Courtney Youssef. Sound design was by Solomon King, and the executive producer was Hummer Khalili. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.